Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Please welcome our host, Jim Roberts, Research Fellow for Economic Freedom and Growth at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you, Catherine, so much. Um, and thanks to all who uh, signed in today or may watch uh, on streaming later. Uh, we're excited today to have two experts um, on the what's been going on in Colombia, joining us for a discussion, which we hope will be enlightening. Uh, South America, the oldest democracy in South America is Colombia, also the fourth largest economy. And in fact, today is the 200th anniversary of Colombia's independence. Colombia has also been a leader in our annual Heritage Foundation Index of Economic Freedom and scores well in the Western Hemisphere region. Unfortunately, as many of you know, there has been a surge of political violence that has rocked the nation of Colombia in recent months, has threatened to destabilize the democratically elected government of President Ivan Duque, who was elected in 2018. And the domestic uh, grievances um, that have fueled the protests, including the government's response to the pandemic, socioeconomic disparities, and citizens' insecurity concerns, uh, those legitimate protests have been co-opted as tools of asymmetric warfare by narco-funded leftist guerrillas and terrorist gangs affiliated with the despotic regimes of, in Venezuela and Cuba. And so here to uh, discuss that with us are our highly um, expert and well-known guests. First, Professor Selena Realuyo. Selena is Professor of Practice at the William J. Perry Center for Hemispheric Defense Studies at the National Defense University. She focuses on U.S. national security, illicit networks, transnational organized crime, counterterrorism, and the threat, of, uh, threat finance issues in the Americas. Selena is a former diplomat, a former foreign service officer, and full disclosure, I was also a former, foreign, I am a foreign, a former foreign service officer, that's a mouthful, and Selena and I actually worked together many years ago at the U.S. Embassy in Panama. Selena has a rich and diverse background also as an international banker with Goldman Sachs as a U.S. counterterrorism official and as a professor of international security affairs at Georgetown, George Washington, and the Joint Special Operations Universities. And she is a graduate of the Harvard Business School, of Johns Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies, SICE, Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, and holds a certificate from the Sciences Po in Paris. She's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations uh, and has uh, several other high-level memberships. Uh, Selena has traveled to over 70 countries and speaks English, French, and Spanish fluently and conversationally in Italian, German, Filipino, and Arabic. So Selena, we're delighted to have you. Let me just introduce Joseph. And uh, Joseph Humeyer, Executive Director of the Center for Secure Free Society. Joseph is a globally recognized security expert specializing in analyzing transregional threats in the Western Hemisphere. He provides regular briefings and lectures on international terrorism, transnational organized crime, Islamism, Iran and Hezbollah's influence in the Americas, 
uh, and has spoken with various entities within the U.S. national security community, as well as prominent think tanks and universities worldwide. Joseph has testified numerous times before U.S. Congress, also U.S. And Can uh, EU and Canadian parliaments, has been an expert witness on a number of occasions, in including an ongoing trial of an accused Hezbollah operative in Peru. Prior to his current position, Joseph was uh, in the U.S. Marine Corps, served a combat tour in Iraq, and, and, uh, and several multinational training exercises in Latin America and the Caribbean called UNITAS. He's a graduate of George Mason University, and he brings a unique blend of military experience, economics, and expertise in asymmetric warfare. So we're delighted to have both of you today with us. Uh, Selena, if you could uh, go first and talk about the internal problems in Colombia and, and other issues. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. And thanks to the Heritage Foundation for uh, shining a spotlight on Colombia, which is one of our longest standing and most trusted allies uh, in Latin America. So this is a big question. Why uh, is what's happening in Colombia of interest to the United States? So as Jim mentioned, I've been working on U.S.-Colombian relations since I was assigned to the U.S. Embassy in Panama in the 1990s, when U.S. Southern Command was actually headquartered um, in Panama. And actually, Jim and I had many neighbors who are those infamous wives and family members of the Narcos that are actually epitomized in the Netflix uh, series, Narcos Colombia. But what we're seeing right now is Colombia facing a triple crisis of the mass protests, the serious fiscal and economic crisis, as well as the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's go to the next slide. Um, what you're seeing now, and Joseph will elaborate on this concept of the convergence of uh, different destabilizing forces that are unsettling the political, economic, social, and security aspects of Colombian society. So as uh, Jim mentioned, they are one of the oldest democracies in the Americas, but they've also been plagued by a 50 plus year old armed conflict with known groups such as the FARC and the ELN that resulted in over 260,000 that were killed. We also know Colombia, sadly, uh, as because of its great natural resources and geostrategic positioning with access to the Pacific and the Atlantic through the Caribbean, we've actually seen how the cocaine trade has sustained, coupled with illicit uh, economy of gold mining, for example, have actually fueled and sustained these different insurgencies. So Colombia is very progressive, one of the more modern countries, but sadly there's still tremendous inequality with 37.5% um, of Colombians living in poverty. Next slide. But why are we here today? Is to take a look at these mass protests. So they came into the news in April 2021, but I just want to highlight the fact that these uh, social protests actually started in November uh, 2019, well before the pandemic. They're similar to the unrest that we saw in Bolivia, in Chile, in Ecuador, and Peru. In Peru, you've just actually seen um, the settlement of the presidential elections, uh, establishing President Castillo as the new president of Peru uh, today. Uh, next slide. But what has been unique? What is different about these protests in Colombia? I already mentioned these long-standing social economic grievances with respect to the economic, social, racial inequalities and high levels of unemployment among the young and women. So there's a concept called the Ninis, 
which means neither nor in Spanish, which is something that's been uh, discussed in Mexico, but it applies in Colombia as well. Youngsters who are neither working or neither studying, who are actually populating a lot of these different protests. That's an important, um, the face of the protests are rather young. If you look at them, they're under 25 years old. Coupled with very low um, uh, approval ratings of the Ivan Duque administration. And the flashpoint really was in April when uh, Duque's team proposed raising taxes to the few Colombians who already pay taxes to address the dire budget deficits. So that's the political piece. And also there have been these other grievances about how the peace process with the FARC has been very slowly implemented in terms of seeking justice and reparations and agrarian reform that were tied to those well-celebrated 2016 uh, peace talks. What you've seen as well, sadly, is the allegations of the abuse of power by the security forces and calls for reform. And actually, uh, yesterday we saw Ivan Duque's government actually institute police reforms uh, that are supposed to uh, mitigate uh, how the uh, security forces are responding to quell these mass demonstrations. And COVID-19. Next slide. So we think about COVID-19. Obviously, we've all lived through it personally and professionally. But what we've seen is all countries have been impacted in these four categories, right? In terms of public health, our human capital, Colombia is one of the countries that is most affected in terms of number of infections and the death rate and has had sadly a very slow rollout of its vaccination um, uh, process. Uh, dire economic impacts, particularly because a lot of Colombia's economy is informal. There are not the safeguards and social services that are afforded in other countries that have a welfare system. Thirdly, we've seen the security forces, whether they be military or police, used to uh, establish um, uh, the Colombian lockdown policies, which have been the most strict um, and the longest in the region. And we've seen this obviously deal with a deal of blow to democracy and the freedom of expression. And this is where we see these protests uh, emanating. Next slide. But how is this of importance to the US uh, in terms of our trusted partner and ally? These are the four categories in which U.S.-Colombian bilateral relations are established. Um, and we've had a history of helping them to solidify their democratic institutions with free and fair elections and the administration of justice. Um, as Jim knows, uh, they're a trusted economic partner thanks to the 2012 free trade agreement that was signed. And we know the way out of this pandemic is through economic growth. And we're hoping that we can use the 2012 uh, FTA as a basis to solidify and more importantly expand on the close ties we have with Colombia economically. And then more importantly, take a look at how we can achieve this concept of near sourcing within the Americas instead of being so reliant on China. In terms of security cooperation, many of our viewers today uh, have heard of Plan Colombia, um, uh, which cost over $10 billion, which is now called Paz Colombia as a result of the peace process, that has reinforced counterterrorism and counter-narcotics um, uh, cooperation to go after armed groups, and more importantly, uh, deal a blow to the cocaine trade, as well as other illicit activities that include illegal gold mining, human trafficking, and the like. Uh, what we've also seen is uh, through that partnership, 
we've seen how Colombia has become a leader in the region in terms of uh, affording assistance to its neighbors, most notably to uh, the uh, immigrants, the emigres, perhaps better said, from uh, Venezuela, totaling almost 1.7 million Venezuelans who have sought refuge from the Maduro regime um, in Colombia. That has had huge impact in terms of socioeconomic uh, aspects, but it's quite interesting to see those who know the history of Colombia know during the um, years of violence, there are many Colombians who went to uh, Venezuela and sought refuge there. So it's a very interesting partnership historically between the Venezuelan and the Colombian people. So as we see this instability growing in Colombia, the U.S. must stand by its uh, trusted ally and try to help um, quell this unrest and instability by promoting transparency, democracy, and economic prosperity. Because they say, as goes Colombia, goes South America. And I think um, Joseph will be able to complement kind of these agitators and these different aspects that are really magnifying um, these protests. COVID isn't the cause. It was actually what we think about as a force multiplier um, or a catalyst for all these long-held grievances that sadly are really starting to uh, interrupt the daily lives of uh, the Colombians and uh, all parts of uh, all regions of the country. Thank you. Thanks so much, Selena, for a very detailed and informative presentation. Now we will turn to Joseph uh, to bring, as, uh, as Selena noted, uh, a complimentary presentation about uh, external actors that are uh, fueling some of these protests and turning them violent. So go ahead, Joseph, please. Well, for, first of all, let me let me begin by thanking you, Jim, thanking uh, the Heritage Foundation for organizing this important discussion about Colombia on its 211th birthday. So happy Independence Day to all my friends that are watching from Colombia, from Bogota or anywhere in the country. Uh, just let you know that the United States is with you uh, and we are with you in the struggle that you're fighting for your democracy. Uh, I believe Jim mentioned Colombia is the oldest democracy in South America. I believe it's the second oldest democracy in the region. And it's probably arguably our top partner for the United States and Latin America at a time when it's sorely needed. We need more partners in, in the region. But for those that aren't uh, familiar with Colombia or, or, or as uh, in-depth as, as Selena explained it, I think the best way to think about Colombia is through the lens of a cockpit. If you were to fly across our southern border, and survey the landscape of Latin America, what you're going to realize is Colombia is the crown jewel. It's literally at the heart and at the crossroads of Central and South America and the Caribbean. And this geostrategic location is both Colombia's blessing uh, and also its curse. Next slide, please. So when the protests began in late April uh, and early May, uh, two things shocked me. Uh, about the protests. I wasn't surprised about the protests. Uh, for those of us that are observers and have been watching Colombia for several years, we know that there's many legitimate grievances by the Colombian people for socioeconomic reasons, for political reasons, for all kinds of reasons, for corruption, and all kinds of things that the Colombian people have uh, had. And these aren't unique to Colombia. These are grievances that extend all, pretty much all throughout Latin America. But what, frankly, what I was surprised at how quickly a specific narrative was formed, especially in the international community. 
uh, you had things hashtags such as nos están matando, which means they are killing us in, in Spanish, or duque genocidio, which means duque genocidal uh, in Spanish, uh, went viral. And, and, and for those of us who have worked or know or, or collaborated with the Colombian government, we know that the duque government's anything but a, a human rights violating government. In fact, they go extra precautions to make sure they abide by international law and human rights uh, codes uh, that are respected through the international community. Uh, President Ivan Duque comes from the multilateral world. He knows very well uh, how this uh, uh, community operates and the importance of abiding by these standards. Uh, but I was surprised at how quickly this narrative was being formed and, and disseminated through, 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 cyber, through cyberspace. The second thing I was surprised about was how literally no democratic government, no democracy in the region, maybe even the world, including the Biden administration and the White House, came to the defense of the Duque government. And this is very frustrating because we're not just seeing in this Colombia, we're seeing this in many other parts uh, of the region. When uh, one country is assaulted, essentially, by uh, external and internal ag actors and agitators, the rest of the democracies in the region essentially leave them to fend for this on their own. And I think that's a drastic mistake because what's happening in Colombia today will happen in the United States tomorrow or happen in another part uh, of the region or the world as democracies worldwide, I believe, are under assault. So next slide. So when I began to dig into this a little bit, we have a report published at our center, the Center for Secure Free Society that you can find called Asymmetric Assault on Colombia. But what I'm gonna do now for you is to give you some examples of some of the things we found when we did this research and we found a lot of foreign disinformation. Here's an example of an account that's on Facebook of a profile that prior to April 28th, prior to when the Columbia protests began, would only post about things related to China or Korea, as you can see, as a profile with Korean or Chinese characteristics. But after April 28th, they changed their location to Cali, Colombia, and they began posting exclusively about the protests in Colombia, including some posts that would reach over 100,000 shares and over 3,000 comments in less than 24 hours. That is almost impossible uh, for any of those that use social media. So clearly there was some type of uh, uh, digital manipulation that was going on in relation to the protests. So what kind of videos and what kind of things were being put on these type of troll accounts that we found? Next slide, please. We found uh, an abundance of fake news. Essentially, this is an example of a video that was posted that supposedly showed the Colombian police, uh, the riot police called ESMAT, uh, assaulting uh, the Banco de Bogota, a prominent bank in Colombia. It was shared thousands of times on Facebook. It went viral. I don't know how many times people sent me this video saying, Joseph, look, the Colombian uh, police is vandalizing a bank, even though that didn't make any sense on the face of it. Uh, nonetheless, when you looked into these videos, in this particular case, in this specific video, you found that it wasn't from Colombia at all. In fact, it was from the 2017 protests in Venezuela, and those aren't Colombian police officers. Those are Venezuelan Maduro regime police that were uh, destroying and vandalizing a bank in Venezuela. Next slide, please. Another quick example was the narrative of police abuse. Now, I'm not discounting that there was abuses by the police, and I was confident that those are and were and going to be investigated by the uh, Colombian authorities. But you would see a lot of videos that would show supposed abuse by the police where they're detaining with excessive force at civilian protesters. But when you actually amplified the video or extended the video and saw the full perspective, what you found was that most of the times the police was being provoked or even in some cases assaulted 
by uh, civilians. In this case, there was a vehicle that tried to run over a, a, a stopping a, a, a point of entry that the police had barricaded on one of the streets in Colombia, and that's why they took uh, these uh, civilians into custody. So my point is essentially you can't believe everything you see uh, when it comes to Colombia. What's up? as widely used as it is for many productive purposes, has also been used for many uh, misinformation and disinformation purposes to distort narratives or to at least showcase specific narratives that favor particular agitators. Next slide, please. We've seen this before. This is not exclusive to Colombia. Chile and Ecuador, and Colombia for that matter, in 2019 went through similar levels of political and social instability. And much like the current Colombia protest today, there was legitimate grievances that were hijacked by agitators, both in person, but also in the digital world. This is one particular study that was analyzed that out of 7 million digital interactions, only 1%, less than 1% of the accounts generated almost 30% of the content. And when you digged into that 1% of the accounts, you found out that most of them were geolocated to Venezuela. You can see it on the screen right now, and that uh, that digital echo system that you're looking at, those green nodes, those are nodes from Venezuela that are amplifying a lot of this fake news and false information. Next slide, please. And we began to see this in Colombia. Now, this isn't a study per se, but this is uh, indications that this same effort, this modus operandi that had been used to distort the narrative in Chile, that had been used to distort the narrative in Ecuador, was now being used to distort the narrative during the current Columbia protest. This is data according to an artificial intelligence firm in Miami that detected more than 7,000 accounts that had nothing to do with Columbia. We're talking about highly sophisticated click farms and net centers as far away as Bangladesh that were talking about the Columbia protest, showing that one specific narrative of Duque government being a human rights violator. Next slide, please. And so what it comes down to, what, what I think this all boils down to, Jim, the, the crux of this conversation is in order to be able to help the Colombian people, in order to be able to get through this current crisis, and why this really matters for the United States is that we have to get the narrative right. Now, this is not to say that there aren't legitimate grievances and protesters inside Colombia. I, see, I think we've seen this also here in the United States. Whenever these mass national protests ensue, there's always at least three groups. There are the legitimate protesters that are expressing their grievance. There are what I call adventure seekers that try to just come onto the protest because they have nothing better to do. And then there's professional agitators that subvert the protest that have no specific uh, connection to the original cause, but are hijacking the protest to steer them towards violence and vandalism. This is the modus operandi that's being repeated all throughout Latin America and I believe also being repeated here in the United States. And if we don't get a handle on this, we're gonna lose one of our constitutional rights of being able to assembly, of being able to do peaceful protests. And I think that is what's at stake here, uh, particularly in the case of Colombia. In the case of Colombia, there's been recent intelligence that have shown uh, specific groups inside Colombia that are funded by groups outside of Colombia. We can get into that a little bit later in the Q and A. Uh, one specific called La Primera Línea, that has well beyond the grievances that Selena mentioned are there specifically to take the Columbia protests into violence. And with that, I'll end by showing a quick video that we put together at the Center for Secure Free Society that shows uh, that evidence.
Well, thank you so much, Joseph. That was a disturbing final video, but a very informative presentation. We appreciate that. I hope the audience has been stimulated to perhaps to answer, to pose some questions. I would like, Joseph, first, though, to give you an opportunity to discuss a related report done by your center about Venezuela. If you could do that, please. Yeah, Jim. So one of the things, aside from the disinformation that we focus on in this report, was the foreign influence that was happening in uh, Colombia during the national protests. And one of the things you have to understand is that uh, the two of the most uh, violent and, and historic narco-terrorist groups in Colombia, which is the Revolutionary Forces of Colombia, the FARC, and the National Liberation Army, the ELN, uh, are now not just Colombian entities. Because of the crack, because of the ability to be able to stop a lot of their efforts during previous administrations in Colombia, these entities migrated to Venezuela. So now in 2021, they are fully binational organizations with equal presence in Colombia and Venezuela. So one of the things that caught my attention about these protests is that they were highly intensified in the city of Cali. That's the third largest city in Colombia. Now, one of the reasons that Cali got the blunt of the violence and the vandalism during these recent protests was because it's near a port city called Buenaventura. And for those of us that are in the national security space, particularly in the CTOC space, we look at Buenaventura as also a major hub for the illicit flow of narcotics and illegal weapons. The ELN and the FARC have used Buenaventura uh, to be able to renew its missions on narco-terrorism. And so how does this involve Venezuela? Well, if the ELN and the FARC are now fully binational narco-terrorist groups, what the Maduro regime sees the benefit of this type of protest and conflict is to be able to use these illicit actors as a way to be able to control more territory inside Colombia with complete plausible deniability. In today's day and age, illicit economies don't respect borders, illicit networks don't respect boundaries, and the Maduro regime's grand vision of how they're going to capture Colombia isn't like it was in the 20th century with the conventional army or military, is to basically use illicit networks to dismantle the democracy in Colombia and then be able to connect its illicit economy. In Venezuela, the formal economy doesn't function anymore. So all they really have is an illicit economy. And if they can connect that with the Colombian illicit economy managed by the FARC and ELN, then they'll have much more power and much more conquest. Thanks, Joseph. And that, in fact, goes directly to the first question from Efrain, which was, is there proof of Maduro participation, Maduro regime? And I think we can say safely after your, your presentation that there is proof. Uh, we have another question from uh, Vasquez. Um, let's see. This little screen is a little bit small, but... Uh, What exactly is the healthcare system? This would be for Salino. The healthcare system now in Colombia, how has that affected their handling of COVID, uh, especially compared to the United States, Selena? Sure, so that's been one of the longer term grievances is healthcare reform. So if you think of any um, economy, right, in terms of what's provided by the government versus what's provided in terms of the private sector, uh, that's actually been the grievance across all of Latin America because they've had such antiquated social healthcare systems that a shock like the pandemic and COVID-19 was overwhelming. And this is actually why you've seen 
um, quite interestingly, the military forces, including in Colombia and in Mexico, get involved in the COVID response. They're the ones that are building those mobile hospitals that we've seen. They're the ones that are distributing the ventilators at the time. And now they're actually in charge of securing and safeguarding the supply chain of the vaccines and its actual distribution. So this is something that's very interesting is the role that the military and the security forces are playing in a non-traditional way in terms of healthcare. Some of the other reforms that had been complained about in the 2019, as well as the more recent April, was this idea of the reform of the healthcare um, that was going to probably restrict access at a time when everyone needed even more healthcare. I mentioned the concept of the, the what we call the informal economy. Yes, you can see in different parts of Colombia where you have on a street corner um, what they call uh, roaming vendors, right? That person has no social security, that person has no healthcare plan. And unfortunately, with the COVID lockdowns, you actually saw the, the informal economy even further affected because of the lack of market. People were not on the streets, they couldn't be on the streets. And sadly, there's no safety net. And this is actually why the healthcare piece and the social services are part of those long-term grievances that has led the Colombians in the street in terms of what we call legitimate protests. So the distribution of the vaccine, and as Joseph knows, I follow transnational organized crime. We're very worried about the distribution of the vaccines that are going to be diverted by criminal groups, right? Um, for either for pay or for um, what we call influence. And then there's a whole other market, which is growing not just in Latin America, but around the world of fake vaccines. And this is also where social media, fake news is starting to affect people's health in terms of those advertisements. So in other countries, they've actually found um, diverted vaccines and also these advertisements for fake COVID remedies. And so what we're seeing then is that COVID is actually breaking the camel's back on a very fragile healthcare system, not just in Colombia, but in other parts of South America. Thank you, Selena. I should have noted that question came from Eleanor Spring, I think. And uh, first, we've seen the U.S. military and National Guard involved in the, our own response in this country to the pandemic last year. Um, uh, the next question. Um, do you think that the, this would be Joseph, I guess, do you think that the propaganda around the protests in the U.S influenced the anti-government, anti-police propaganda in, in the Colombian protests, uh, for example, defund the police, et cetera, for Joseph. Yeah, yes, absolutely, I do. I think, you see, this is the thing about uh, the cyberspace. It, there is no borders. So these uh, click farms, these net centers that are being set up to be able to amplify uh, disinformation at a very brutal level are not just used for one uh, particular crisis or conflict, they're used for multiple. Uh, and behind a lot of these uh, efforts, it's hard to prove, but we're looking very closely at some of the digital forensics because behind, we suspect that behind a lot of these efforts are adversaries, not just of the United States, but adversaries of free societies and democracies worldwide. I'm sp talking specifically about Russia, about China, about Iran, about Cuba, about Venezuela. And so they've got very good at uh, using this kind of digital techniques, digital manipulation to be able to go after their adversaries in a way that provides them 
some levels of plausible uh, deniability. And what, uh, let me just one more point, Jim, on this, and I mentioned this during my remarks, but uh, I believe that the democracies and the free societies of the world need to get very smart about how to counter this type of high levels of disinformation. It's literally destroying the confidence that the public has within its institutions. And the thing is, it doesn't matter if you correct the record later, the damage is already done. When this stuff goes viral and it gets spread all throughout the population, it doesn't matter if it's if it's corrected or if we figure out it was a lie, uh, the damage is done. And, and one of the things that I think that democracies need to start doing is we need to establish a best practices manual for how to de defend against these type of uh, digital uh, manipulation attacks. Yeah, thank you, Joseph. Um, that, by the way, that question came from Christine uh, Balling. Uh, next one is from Marcos, and it says, uh, "Is uh, uh, basically is um, the La Primera Linea similar to similar movements in the U.S., uh, perhaps uh, BLM or Antifa?" Joseph. So in the case of La Primera Línea, and this is not just in Colombia, they have La Primera Línea in Chile, they have La Primera Línea in Ecuador as well, so it's not, it's not just exclusive to Colombia, is what we've seen is that we've seen that they basically do what I've been saying we need to do on the more democracy and free society side of the house, we need to be able to share best practices, they do that on their side of the house. So they share a lot of information, they share a lot of knowledge and know-how, about how to agitate police, how to provoke the authorities, how to basically use trickery with their cameras to be able to provoke the police, then only record the part where the police responds and then send that out to condemn the police to the international community. Uh, they share that with Antifa. They share that with local agitators here in the United States, including Black Lives Matter and others. So I think that they are these more autocratic elements, these more, uh, uh, I call them professional agitators. Uh, they are learning from one another Maybe if they don't have a, a vertical structure, the command and control structure that controls all of them, which I don't believe they have, they certainly have a horizontal structure that allows them to learn from one another to be able to uh, cause uh, more efficient chaos and conflict uh, throughout different countries, uh, mostly in the Western Hemisphere. Thank you. Uh, one of our viewers, Matteo, would like you just maybe to review the highlights of the financing of these protests, external financing, if you could just, I think you covered that, but we'd like to hear it again. So. Yes, yeah, so according to Columbia Intelligence and uh, some of the Colombian media outlets, particularly I think Semana, a prominent magazine in Colombia, as well as El Tiempo, a prominent newspaper in Colombia, have done very good coverage of this in the last few days and weeks about how La Primera Línea is essentially financed by the ELN and FARC in the case of Colombia. And when you talk about the ELN and the FARC, I mean, you're talking about all kinds of illicit finance. You're talking about narco-trafficking, illegal gold smuggling, illegal oil smuggling, counterfeiting, contraband. I mean, they manage illicit economies. So when you look at the southern part of Colombia, there's a huge illicit economy that's largely funded by narco-trafficking. But if you go further east, it's funded by illicit oil smuggling and gold smuggling. Uh, that's the ELN and the FARC. So they dominate that illicit economy and they're the ones providing these financial support to the, ag the agitators on the ground, such as La Primera Línea. Thanks, Joseph. Uh, Eleanor is asking a second question about the Duque regime and uh, how, how can Americans know 
what is true and what is false uh, with regard to the accusations against the, the Duque government. Selena. So um, they've been quite transparent in terms of its attorney general's uh, office, in terms of taking it the number of accusations, and then more importantly, taking a look at those who've died as a result of the protest and putting them into categories of how they died and what the altercation was. Um, so according to the attorney general, there's actually been 24 documented deaths through this type of conflict. And also what we're seeing is an attempt to go as quickly as possible to document, arrest, and investigate those uh, police officers who've been involved in alleged human rights abuses. What we've seen, though, is that because of uh, the international coverage of the April and May uh, protests, it became highly politicized. And then more importantly, the number of those human rights abuses grew. So each of these denuncias or denouncements should be investigated. But more importantly, there's this question about where the video come from, who started and instigated the armed uh, altercation, right? And then more importantly, who should be brought to justice or a, a, a be accused of being the instigator and the perpetrator of either the injuries or the deaths. So that's an important thing to take a look at. And today I was just checking my Twitter feed while Joseph was speaking. Um, there are actually protests amassing in Bogota, Medellin and Cali. And the ELN had actually threatened terrorist attacks um, against the Duque government uh, today on uh, National Day. So this is something that's very important to take a look at. And guess what? These armed groups, they love chaos and they love instability because what's happening? The police are very distracted trying to quell these protests in large urban areas while they are being, instead of actually going after the armed groups and their criminal activities. So this type of instability actually uh, creates an environment conducive to the illicit economy that the FARC dissidents and the ELN and other cartels that are there, uh, they can actually continue in their drug trade um, and all their other types of uh, activities that they're uh, engaged in. And they, they want the state to be weak. They don't necessarily want to take over the state in kind of what we call classic insurgency terms. Uh, it's pretty convenient for them to have a non-popular government, uh, and more importantly, their security forces uh, dealing with the crisis of the day instead of pursuing and dismantling transnational criminal networks. And uh, as a follow-up, Selena, Marcos wanted to know about the impact of the mass migration from Venezuela into Colombia, especially the impact on un unemployment and, uh, and whether that has been a factor uh, in these protests, Selena. So that has, so if you take a look at it, if you, there's already high unemployment, it's actually exacerbated by the volume of um, Venezuelan migrants who've been crossing the border into Colombia. This was happening actually prior to the pandemic, uh, but obviously it's at even tougher times that Colombia is living now. Uh, and we've actually seen too, with the closure of the borders, there's no movement norther, uh, northwards, right? So. Sometimes Colombia would be just the transit point for these Venezuelans who would then reunite with family members in other parts. Uh, so that's an important piece. Sadly too, in Colombia, despite the close ties, people to people ties between the Venezuelans and Colombians, there had been um, uh, xenophobic rhetoric uh, blaming the Venezuelans for the socioeconomic woes that the Colombian um, uh, people had been experiencing. And Joseph and I have traveled for, I've traveled there the last 10 years very regularly. And just the physical presence 
of Venezuelans in the streets, on the corner, as those kind of uh, roaming vendors was much more pronounced the last three years. You can actually feel it. They have a very different accent than the Colombians, so you can hear them. Uh, mostly engaged in the way we interacted with them in service, either at a restaurant or at the hotel. But more importantly, you could feel the presence. Um, and it's quite important. And that's actually why Colombia is critical in terms of A, helping with the humanitarian crisis in its neighbor, Venezuela. Um, and then more importantly, in resolving and restoring a free and fair democracy uh, in what we call an era post Maduro. Jim, if you, if you don't mind, if I could just jump in one, one second. Sure, yeah. Compliment what Selena saying, because I think this is a very important point, particularly for those that are concerned about the United States, about our border security, about uh, the immigration crisis. Uh, so uh, what people have to understand is the Central American migration is not the largest migration happening in the Western Hemisphere. In fact, it's third. The largest migration outflows that are happening in the Western Hemisphere are coming or flowing out of Venezuela. We're talking about 5.6 million migrants or refugees that have left that country since 2014. Now, the blunt of that, had the, almost half of it has gone to Colombia and the rest has gone to other parts of South America. Most of those migrants have traveled south. But as we enter this post-pandemic period, a lot of these South American countries just can't handle, uh, like logistically, financially, economically, cannot handle any more of this mass migration from Venezuela. So where are they gonna go? They're gonna push north. And unless we work with Colombia on how to deal with this situation, they're gonna reach our border. And right now, if you think we have a problem right now with about 6,000 apprehensions per day, according to the May figures of uh, CPB, uh, that's gonna number is gonna multiply quickly once the Venezuelan migration connects to the Central American migration, uh, and that's gonna create a, a, a very chaotic situation at our border. So even for those that are maybe not concerned so much about what's going on specifically in Colombia, if they think about our border, they need to be thinking about Colombia. That really is kind of almost our third border uh, from uh, the United States. Thank you, Joseph. We have just time for one more question, and it'll go to James Tull, who is asking both of you, basically, where should the U.S. focus? What are the most effective tools the U.S. has to influence these protests? Also, uh, an earlier question I wanted to know about the illicit uh, narco trade be between Colombia and Venezuela, uh, and this would be a good time to talk about what a possible Colombia plan Plan Columbia 2.0 uh, would look like. We don't have a whole lot of time, so to both of you, please. Uh, I so, start? So, so, Selena first. So if we take a look at the relationship, we look at it in terms of three buckets, right? So there's the COVID bucket or the health bucket, where we have already, the Biden administration has already delivered Moderna vaccines, and they're are, uh, on track to deliver more. Because actual physical recuperation from the uh, pandemic is good for Colombia, it's good for the United States, it's good for the whole region. On the second um, pillar, if we want to call it that, Jim and I uh, are really are believers in that free trade concept. How can we energize their economy at the same time, our economy, by creating these tighter supply chains and that concept of near sourcing? Um, Colombia is quite vital in terms of the production of plastics and medical supplies that could be coming to the United States instead of us outsourcing to Asian partners as we have done traditionally. And the third sphere, which I dedicate most of my uh, daytime uh, job to, is looking at that security cooperation. Um, despite the uptick of cocaine trade um, and the illicit economy and illicit activities, uh, the Colombians in partnership with the US and other partner um, 
allies have been very effective in large interdictions of cocaine, uh, particularly in the maritime route. And we should uh, double down our efforts to uh, reinforce the security base that we have there in terms of uh, the skill sets, the equipment, and the training that is so important. Uh, and sadly, we know that addiction is up around the world and it's gonna just create more demand for uh, illicit narcotics. Uh, we're suffering that here in the United States. The other account, as uh, Jim and Joseph know, that I cover is Mexico. The opioid crisis is an example, and the lethal combination of Colombian cocaine and fentanyl from China and Mexico is killing our kids on our streets. Uh, the sum was over 93,000 overdose deaths in the United States. So what happens abroad is a vital interest to our national security and our interests in our own neighborhood. And sadly, uh, our counter-narcotics efforts are trying to prevent those deaths um, in our neighborhoods. Thanks. And Joseph, a quick uh, response. Yeah, very, very quickly, I'm just gonna touch on three things, um, which I think Selena also touched on. One is in the economic space. I 100% agree we need to increase robust uh, economic cooperation, trade, all that with Colombia. We already have good trade, but we need to amplify that. Uh, Selena talked about nearshoring. I, I would call this friendshoring because we need to be able to work with also countries that are like-minded, not just because they're geographically close to us, but because we share the same values. Uh, on the security space, uh, Jim, you mentioned the need for a planned Colombia 2.0, and I would say this may be even a clan Colombia times 10 because this is the threat that we're facing from Venezuela is much greater even than the threat that the Colombians face from uh, the FARC. And I think in that, that that cooperation, security cooperation that we have with Colombia, it also has to involve with uh, being able to build an academic excellence among the Colombian military. They are excellent on the battlefield. They are excellent as trusted military partners, but we want to get them to the level that they have a geopolitical awareness and understanding close to, if not similar to, what we have here in the United States. And then finally, I think this extends past Colombia, and I think the Biden administration needs to hurry up and create a grand strategy for Latin America. We need to have a big vision of what we see Latin America in terms of U.S. foreign policy and national security, and then we need to implement that vision because the clock is ticking. Colombia is just the first of many crises that are happening all over from Cuba to Haiti, to Central America, all the way down to Peru. And Latin America, which has once considered maybe the lost uh, region in foreign policy, is now quickly uh, coming to, to, to remind us why it's so important. Well, thank you to both of you. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our a lot of time. In fact, we've gone over a bit, but uh, I do want, and we have more than a dozen questions that have not been answered, including one from a former colleague, Michael Skoll, uh, who was interested in the Biden-Harris administration policies. I think we've addressed that partially. But I hope people can go uh, to your websites and uh, also to Heritage. We'll be coming out with a paper on all these issues soon. And we greatly appreciate everyone's attendance, and especially to uh, Selena and Joseph. Uh, thank you from Heritage and from me. Best wishes, and thanks for tuning in.